Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome. So glad you're able to join us for this episode. Today, we have a stellar guest for you. Her name is Ellen Robinson, and I have known Ellen for boy, a number of years now. Originally, Ellen and I got to know one another when she was serving on the board of directors for an organization where I was an executive leader. And uh, Ellen has a storied career. Today, she is the founder of the Robinson Coaching Group and co-founder of the Person Puzzle Company. I'm sure you'll hear more about that work. In her career, prior to starting her coaching practice, Ellen was the general manager for Denver Pepsi Cola. And then she was president of Ascent Sports. And as a native of Denver, uh, I have to cheer that one because that's, Ascent Sports owns the Denver Nuggets and the Colorado Avalanche. And she was there during the time when the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. And so that was a very exciting series to watch. And you know, Ellen, as long as we've known each other, I didn't realize you were there during the Stanley Cup years. So that's really fun, 1996. Uh, she's also started a software as a service company in the large scale event space and uh, is a, f- a fantastically talented and accomplished leader, but now has turned her sights to coaching and helping leaders uh, develop themselves. And you're going to learn a lot more about that and some specific ways to develop your own leadership. So Ellen, thank you so much for being here today on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Ah, it's such a pleasure to be with you again, David, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. As am I. Well, let's dive in. The, the first question that I ask every guest is, what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? Yes, you know, as I was thinking about that, my earliest memory is really of, as an entrepreneur, which has always been a common thread through a lot of my leadership. I was that kid who, in the scorching heat, New England sun, uh, humidity, would have a lemonade stand. And when I went off to college, I started a bagel business on Sundays and rented out space out of a lounge for students. So I've always had um, a can-do confidence and a lot of initiative, which I'd say tied up with an entrepreneurial spirit is how my original leadership showed up. So seeing those opportunities and, and providing the initiative to take advantage of them and get things done. Yes, yes. And I mentioned a can-do attitude or spirit, I also have a kind of a can-learn confidence. So I never held myself back from making it happen, but mostly because I knew if it didn't quite work out the way I wanted to, I could learn something from it. Not just a lesson learned, but I could make it better by learning as I go. Let's talk a little bit more about that, that can-learn attitude, because I know that for many leaders, that fear of getting things wrong or failing or uh, you know, or not getting it right, any of those kinds of fears can really hold leaders back from making decisions, from taking initiative, from raising their hand, uh, you know, or, or stepping out in different ways. How would you recommend leaders adopt that can-learn attitude? Yes, it is. It's so important. There's what's called a mood of ambition. Rich inside of that mood is that sense that I can learn as I do. I often, when I work with leaders, make the distinction between what you said, things that hold us back, fear, a mood of anxiety, that anxiety can be teased out for all sorts of reasons, as you mentioned, the fear of failure. And as humans and as leaders, and leaders, I'd like you to remember, are humans too, we can shift our mood if we can become conscious and aware of it. 
recognizing that confidence can be built by what our ability to learn, be resilient and recover. I mean, so many things do with self-awareness of where am I really, what's going on here. And as I can identify that and acknowledge what's happening there, I can start to make some different choices. Yes. Oh, it all starts with um, self-awareness. I often talk about a leader has to have at least four eyes. Uh, The four real quickly are they have to have an eye on themselves. They have to have a deep, deep, almost tunnel into themselves. They certainly have to have an eye on on another person or other people. They can have an eye on the system of their whole organization. And they absolutely want to have an eye on the experience of their customer, the ultimate set of eyes. But that all is wrapped around a self-awareness, an eye on their selves for all of the emotional intelligence, other sorts of things I'm sure we'll talk about that leaders develop themselves around. Uh, As uh, someone who uh, earlier in life was called four eyes, uh, I did not know those were leadership eyes. I just was waiting for them to fully develop. Uh, I love that. So let's run through those again. There's the eye on yourself, the eye on your customer, and what were the other two? Actually, the order I like to think about it is, is eye on myself, eye on another person. So much of the first step of leadership is um, good communication, really solid conversations with somebody else, understanding another person's point of view, being able to, as a self, recognize your own point of view, recognize somebody else has a point of view and can be in a conversation with another person with curiosity and openness to have the best outcome for that conversation. So an eye on yourself, an eye on the other. Then we start looking at the bigger system and you might have an eye on the organization and how um, all these others fit together on teams, in different functions, et cetera, in the organization. And then the widest eye is on the experience you're delivering for your customer. I'm curious when, you know, the name of the show is Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And when you think of leaders losing their soul, what does that look like? And where have you seen it happen? What causes that? Yeah, well, first of all, when I, when you and I reconnected and I realized that's your mantra, leadership without losing your soul, that is totally you, David. You are one of the most soulful leaders that I've ever had the pleasure to work with. So I so appreciate being in this conversation with you now. No, thank you. Leaders lose their soul when they don't bring their whole self to their leadership. There's so many parts of ourselves, but to simplify it a, a bit for here, we have a mind. Leaders have amazing minds that think, and they also judge, and they prepare, and they you know, learn knowledge. And we have a heart that feels and empathizes and learns relationships. And then we have this body you know, that senses. It's actually our first warning system. It senses. It holds. It can hold contraction or it can hold trauma. It reacts, and then it goes into action. My experience when I meet leaders, when they're ready to really take their leadership to the next level is, well, it may not be um, as significant as losing their soul. They've lost their heart and they've lost a bit of their body or at least their contact with it. They may have to this point had a more conventional idea about leadership where we compartmentalize. We bring our brain and our mind to our work and we're, not feeling comfortable about taking our heart and our feelings 
to work and we actually don't even have a real good understanding of, of what our body's all about. And that leaves us quite vulnerable as humans to losing our soul as we struggle to do really hard, difficult things with other people, as I mentioned, with those four eyes, but not have our whole self available to do just that. It's interesting as you're talking about the different elements that we potentially can bring to the table and don't always, and the consequences of that. From an influence perspective, uh, in my first book, and, and I, as I was working with leaders, you know, one of the things you're, I, I want, I wish everybody put their heart into it. And it's an interesting phrase because if you want everyone's heart in it, well, you've got to show up with your heart too. And if we don't, there's a disconnect there. How's that going to work? Well, and I just wanted to say, and, and heart and soul kind of come into the same phrase, right? So you want your heart and soul into it. I'm curious for you, how did you come to this understanding and awareness of we have these different elements of our whole self. It's important that they all show up together if we're going to be as effective and influential as we can. I'm guessing that starting from your lemonade stand on, they weren't all there and it took some time to learn. Can you tell us about that journey? Yeah, of course. Thanks. And that is a big part of my can learn for myself, my own self-awareness, putting myself, my eye on myself. I did not combine these well. I did not stay in alignment with my head, heart, and body. I led, like many leaders I know, totally with my head. <laughs> Sometimes I draw a snowman with the three parts, and I discombobulate it. So my head of the snowman was way out ahead of my heart and my body, which were actually left behind. And the long and the short of that is, at a very early age, I burnt out. Literally, symptoms of burnout, chronic stress, you know, suppressing feelings and emotions that leave your body achy and unable to be available. And relate, I lost relationships, important relationships. From that burnout for myself, I became aware that there had to be another way. Fast forward to shifting my career and becoming really interested in supporting other leaders so that they can learn from um, what I had learned. I went to coaching school, New Ventures West, which is where I have my coach background. They added the specific knowledge. I knew I didn't know it, and they filled in the blank about what I didn't know. And these concepts of your mind and your heart and your body and your soul are really, really fundamental to good coaching and coaching um, leaders. So as you, you know, it's that can learn again that you talked about, recognizing that, okay, something is missing here. And then as you transitioned and you took, said, okay, I got to find this information somewhere and, and coaching school is where you were able to find it. I'm curious, your recommendations as someone's listening to the show right now and they're thinking, gosh, I am showing up primarily just that snowman head, you know, or maybe a different part, you know, I've, I've met leaders too, or very, very heart soul focused and, and need a little bit more head too as well. And I'm even curious about the disconnect from the body, but as you're thinking about folks who are listening right now and they're maybe they're driving in or, or they're on the treadmill listening and they're heading in and they're thinking, gosh, I do have some of that disconnect. I'm not showing up whole. What's the first step to integration and showing up as a whole self at work? Yeah. Wonderful question. The first, you can't integrate until you find all the pieces and the parts. 
I'm sorry to say. So it is a process. There is a first step, of course, typically reconnecting with our heart. That seems to be such a natural human element of who we are as people. So it's not far away, but we most often have cut or disconnected ourselves from it. And I have my clients do, and uh, uh, individuals can do some pretty basic noticing and naming exercises, even with vocabulary lists of feelings. But you can start with the mad, sad, afraid, and glad. So you can start with the four basic feelings. Having the power of reflection, just as a side note, is also a very, very important eye on myself as a leader skill. Very in short order, and your listeners could build, pull out or build the reflective muscle by thinking about three, four times a day, stopping, probably having to put a timer in their phone to remember to do this, and actually sit still for a moment and connect to mad, sad, afraid, or glad. Actually stop thinking about what they're thinking about and settle in and drop into how they're feeling. And just build that muscle to be able to notice, I have a feeling, it actually starts with your body, and then be able to name it, like that's my glad feeling. It sounds so straightforward. And from my own experience, and experience talking with many, many people, not just in leadership roles, but you know, just people, in our culture, people frequently have a tough time doing what you just said about just sitting and feeling their feelings. And just the big four that you talked about, uh, recognizing afraid is a frad to make it rhyme with the, the four. I love that. But to just feel those things, I've met so many people, many leaders included, who run from those feelings and don't want to let's say, let them do their work or connect with them because they're afraid that it will somehow limit their leadership. There's, there's a, an easy way to feel a little more comfortable doing it, which is to acknowledge, and it's true, that part of us might feel that way, but another part of us might feel somewhere else. So if it feels more comfortable, we can say, sure, part of me as I notice this is feeling some fear or feeling anxiety. But another part of me is excited about what's possible. And that is a way to help your brain and your nervous system allow the difficult feeling in without your ego being worried that you are identifying completely with the, what we would call the more negative feeling. And it's true. We all know the idea of mixed emotions. We typically don't feel just one way. We are complex beings. And so it's even more granular or more skillful as a leader to be able to connect with all those parts and acknowledge they can all coexist. And in fact, that's where I do get my strength and resiliency to not let one overwhelm the other. And it can cut both ways. You could be manic. I mean, we all know leaders or people, I should say, that want to be leaders who are just all gung-ho and uh, full of vim and vigor, but they don't seem grounded. Yes. So we don't necessarily want to follow them either. And they don't seem to connect with, hey, there's some things that we'd really like you actually to pay serious attention to. So this idea of um, having and being able to hold mixed emotions would be a first step. 
I love that. Such a vital practice. And like I say, it's one of those that can sound simple and straightforward. And I think it's one that we overlook or move hurry past it at our peril. It's, it's vital. So Ellen, when we have, one of the things I know about you, and you even mentioned it just now in terms of the nervous system and the mind and, and so forth. And if you're listening, I want you to stick with us for just a second here, because this is an important concept. I'm a big believer in this, but the way that Ellen, you've talked about it in the past is, is managing and leading with the brain in mind. So we've been talking about the leader reflecting on their own experience, their own emotions, and so on. Let's talk about their influence, their outward focus with regard to their people, and particularly leading with the brain in mind. What does that mean to you? And, and let, then we'll get into practically how we do it. Yeah, yeah. It means a few things. One is not only do we have these three parts that we mentioned, but there's two important parts to make it, put it simply, inside of your mind. There's your analytical, logical, um, practical, can-do kind of side of the mind. It is more thinking and judging, as I mentioned, in your judging and evaluating op options. But in our own mind, there's also the right side of the brain, if you will, that is the connection to our heart. It's the resonance that when somebody empathizes with me, I take that in through my brain and my nervous system also because it's resonated with actually a feeling that I have in my heart. And acknowledging and recognizing as a leader that that process is going on for every other that we're talking about, that I on the other person. And how we connect or communicate or have the conversation as difficult as it might be with the other to realize that if we don't actually calm down, make comfortable that right side of the brain, the good thinking logical part won't be accessed. The nervous system literally is reacting or judging or sensing with the other, are you a friend or a foe? And it's in every moment. Of course, you have a relationship with somebody. The nervous system has more of a chance that even in this tough conversation, it's gonna be recognized as a friend that's coming in and resonating with that side of the brain and relaxing the nervous system so that the real thinking analytical side can be working as seamlessly and as strongly and as powerfully as it can. So recognizing when one of the practical applications that you're talking about is recognizing that when you sit down to have a difficult conversation with someone, uh, which is part of your role, part of your job, that there's a whole lot going on that you're not seeing. And that some of that is an automatic in the, the soul connected part of the brain that is looking friend or foe and it's, very, it's atavistic, it's very deep, deeply ingrained in us and, uh, and it's there. So being aware that that's happening and paying attention to how you're going about cultivating that environment, the relationship, everything that's going into that moment in that conversation. So with that in mind, so we know that this invisible stuff is happening in, in the brain, yours and theirs, how do you invite leaders to go about approaching those kinds of conversations? Yeah, great question. Um, I typically, going right into it, suggest that the leaders, first of all, understand that this is going on. 
It's a threat response is another way to describe it. So a technique or a skill in on ramping kind of into the conversation is what I call framing. I often suggest leaders frame and invite consent of the other to have the conversation. And right there, so in the framing might be, I need to have a difficult conversation with you, but, and it's a, uh, you're not getting fired. So how, whatever it is, ensuring that there's some certainty around what the conversation is gonna be about and what it's not about. So actually that'd be another way to say it is, I'm, I'm going to have a difficult conversation, but it's not about your career here. And then always ask, is this a good time? Or can we set a time that's gonna work for you? Again, it allows the other person to feel like, okay, I've got some power in this. I have autonomy in this. There's some certainty that I've discovered because I'm told what this isn't about, which is what I'd be worrying about. Now I can be more available and ready, particularly, of course, if it's based on some other foundation of trust, like this other person I know cares about me, has shown support of me, I'm ready. So a leader being able to frame a conversation with those two important things in mind, what it is and isn't about creating certainty and with consent to have the conversation. So there's collaboration or at least some autonomy that the other person has in when this conversation is going to be had. And for listeners of the show, you, you're familiar with what we call the inspire model method. And that inspire method is our way of guiding leaders. It's an acronym through difficult conversations. And so that first stage I stands for initiate. And so for listeners of the show, you'll recognize Ellen has just unpacked a really masterful way to initiate and frame those conversations in a way that helps address the whole person that you're having the conversation with. And you mentioned one thing, which we don't obviously don't want to skip over, which is it's obviously better in the context of a trusting relationship. And so, you know, that's that step that doesn't happen overnight and makes everything else easier if we invest the time and effort in that. So, so true. And trust is T-R-U-S-T, right? A five-letter word, not a four-letter word, but it means everything. And there's so many layers of trust. A few that I like to point to when I'm talking to a client or a leader is, can I trust you? with your sincerity of what you're having to say. So sincerity is an important component of it. Can I trust you with your competence? So oftentimes we're talking with somebody about activating something and they say, yes, I'll go do it. And you leave leave with, well, I don't really trust them. Well, that doesn't mean, we know that doesn't mean that we don't trust them as a human, but they signed up for something too quickly that we don't really think they can do. Sincerity and follow through are two different elements of trust. Yes. Yep. And there's a third reliability. Is there a track record? So I know that they're sincere and they want to do this for me or they feel sincerely about me. They do have the competence, but they've got some other lack of skillfulness around managing their time over committing. So I still walk away with some anxiety around whether this will be done because they haven't been reliable in the past. And there's a few others, but those are a few good things to really be able to think about more specifically in the area of trust. Yeah, that's worth if you are driving or treadmilling, it's worth pulling over, getting, stepping off and writing those down, those elements of trust and realizing that if, if you're picking up that you're not as trusted as you would like, 
those are some great places to look. Uh, and I haven't heard it expressed in terms of those different elements that way before. That's, uh, that's smart. That's, that's so well said too, David, to point out so often, this is again, where your eye is. We do not understand the impact we're having on other people. We may be, see ourselves as a trustworthy person. And so our intent is to be trusted by somebody else. And then you just explain, and we don't even realize that because of our lack of reliability, which again may be based on a lack of uh, time management, we overcommit. And so our intention is so solid around being trustworthy. I'm a good, solid person, but we drop the ball. We don't deliver. And we don't recognize the impact that we've left on the other person is they actually, they would maybe say to somebody else, no, I don't really trust that she'll get it done. I was just having this conversation uh, two nights ago with regard to a chief marketing officer for a company I won't mention who I met uh, at one point in my career. And they had a brilliant, really sharp mind. They were great personally, relationally, and uh, had this way of in 60 or 90 seconds talking to you and figuring out the right product and sending that product to you. And it was, it was brilliant, masterful on the sincerity of intention side. And I lost a massive amount of respect for this individual and for their company because of exactly what you said. They had the sincerity, they had the competence, they were capable of doing it, but the follow through, the reliability wasn't there. And that breaks trust. And you know, one of the, boy, those three, I, I, now you've got my wheels turning again. That's <laughs> so vital, so important. Wow. So let's shift gears a little bit. Back to you and your career. As you think through your, your career growth and, and going from your, where you entered, I mean, you're a graduate of Wharton, you've got a great education and the head knowledge and then all the experience that you gained along the way. Can you think of one or two moments in time where something happened that taught you one of those leadership lessons that you have carried with you the rest of your career? What, what happened and what did you learn from that? Yeah, yeah. I can think of a quick one and then maybe a little longer um, story. But quick one was I was probably in my late 20s, just uh, having moved up first few jobs at Frito-Lay and I was at Pepsi. So I didn't have a lot of career experience yet which is so important, which I didn't realize, in really building relational skills and other capacities. I was hard charging and the more that I could do, I did do. There was a position open, significant promotion. I wanted it. A senior leader sat me down, literally one of those sat me down and said, Ellen, you have a lot of potential, but you just can't get ahead of yourself that far. And just really kind of, synced up where I was in my own huge set of blind spots around the impact I was having on people and, and just how I would need to mature, you know, as a human, not just take a whole bunch of brains and skills and keep charging forward. And I reflect on that a lot and I see it a lot in other younger people that have so much potential and it's just a little bit of, if not slow down, no one wants to hear about slowing down, but maybe just deepening and maturing. Let's capitalize on that for just a second, because I think this is an element you just said, you see it in so many young leaders. 
uh, and young people in general. And my experience has certainly borne that out. You could have just been describing me at one point <laughs> in my career, right? Right. And I hear it from leaders all the time. And, you know, it was all about millennials, but in the gen- we've got new generation coming into the workforce. So it's, it's going to transition and be about them, right? But this notion that young leaders or young people are eager for promotion and more leadership roles and so forth, and more senior leaders who were in the role that the senior leader was for you say, well, I'm, I'm see the hunger, but they're not there yet. So the next question for listeners right now is when you've got a talented, ambitious person on your team who you can see is hungry and they've got the talent, but they need something more. They need some more seasoning. They need some more experience. They, there's something that they don't quite have yet. And you need to have that conversation with them. Let's turn it around. What did that senior leader do for you? How did they have that conversation? Maybe they didn't, but how would a senior leader have that conversation elegantly to help you understand what it's going to take in a way that doesn't just say, well, you need to just sit and wait your turn. That's yeah. which is not at all what we're saying. That's not at all what we're saying. You know, one way I think is to, you know it when you see it. So if a manager or a boss or a leader of somebody, not a coach being involved in this, is having this experience, they know it. They know that this individual is just doesn't have the maturity that is necessary to deal with more people and all the issues with you know opportunities and possibilities with people along with more problems, systemic problems, all those sorts of things. Ask them to identify role models, people who they really admire for the reasons that they admire them, uh, people who they'd want to follow, people that they want to be more like. And then from there, presumably those people will have the sort of characteristics, the develop, more deeply developed character that this leader is trying to open up for the individual. And then unpack that, uh, share the commonality of, of that leader, the interest and the admiration for that leader, And then the more mature leader, boss, manager, person having the conversation can point out what the younger leader, the emerging leader just isn't noticing or seeing about that individual that they're talking about. So pointing to somebody that's got it, you know what, when you see it, you may need help identifying it. That would be, and then if you were to look at that individual's career and what they've done from a self-development perspective, you also have the path. Mm-hmm. I think that pathing is, is vital. So starting with creating almost a contrast because you're looking at a role model or models and saying, okay, here's where they are. So you may see that potential in yourself, but most of the time we're self-aware enough with a question like that to say, okay, there is a gap. And then to help with the pathing to get there. What does it look like? What experiences do I need to have? What are the problems I'm looking to solve elegantly? Um, Skills I need to acquire, any of that that I can be working towards there uh, is going to help that person stay hungry, but know that they can get there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so the other side of that is, and then what's in it for them for doing this? And what's in it for them is to become that sort of leader and look at what that sort of leader is able to accomplish, look at the sort of life that they're leading, 
look at the way that they have the sort of relationships that they have in their life. And I think pointing out those sorts of um, benefits from being a whole developed leader and the hard work of self-development that that takes. Absolutely. Well, that is a valuable set of skills because if you're listening and you have not had that conversation with somebody yet, just wait a few weeks. It's coming. You will absolutely have that. So Ellen, you had started to say there was a second uh, experience that you had had that was also very uh, informative for you. Yeah. So I had a role model experience that went bad, if you will. This is somewhat of a sad story. It was later in my career enough that I could be self-reflective um, about it. There was a senior leader. Um, her name was Brenda Barnes uh, at Pepsi-Cola Company. She was about 10 years older than me. And there was no doubt I wanted to be like Brenda Barnes. She was president eventually of Pepsi-Cola Company. And that's what I was going to be. And I had an opportunity actually through doing the naming rights deal at Pepsi Center, which I was able to uh, have the opportunity to, to get that de uh, deal done when I was um, at Pepsi. And then I had the opportunity at a young age um, to become the general manager of the Pepsi-Cola um, plant there. And as you said in my bio, the, um, the answer to that is I did become the general manager, but my path to doing so was getting on a first class plane to headquarters at Pepsi-Cola company to go sit down on a Friday afternoon with my role model, Brenda Barnes, because as much as she knew me, she really wanted to talk with me specifically about becoming this general manager and get her own assessment of really where, if she was going to entrust me with that. And I walked into that afternoon into that office feeling as, as my ego could have filled the room. And when I left the conversation and left a few hours later, I actually couldn't tell you anything about the business conversation that we had, but I did, ask her as a Friday afternoon, what was she doing that weekend? Hey, Brenda, what are you doing this weekend? She had three children married and to be able to take in the contraction of her body and the tightness of her face. And I just read in her that she would be working all weekend or she wouldn't have that connection with her family that I was going back to on the other end of my trip on this Friday afternoon. I walked out of that room, my heart filled the room. And I decided, uh, said to myself, I never want to be like Brenda Barnes. It was a real, real moment in my life and in my career. And I committed to myself to live a whole life, mm -hmm. to value my relationships. I had younger, much younger children at the time. And I've done a lot of work to, as you mentioned earlier, to integrate more of what's important to me in my life. And that was sadly because of the experience. Brenda passed away a few years ago. She had had a stroke shortly after I had seen her and a series of other difficult health experiences. And so um, now she's not here with us. Wow. Uh, you are, well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you're reminding me of uh, the the prior interview a few episodes ago to yours uh, where we were talking with a CEO who had shared uh, the experience of recognizing that you don't have to live your life that way and being successful. And obviously you've been very successful business-wise and now you're, you know, got several ventures that you're, you're leading now and that we have a choice. 
And for you, it was, that was the awareness, the recognition of who you didn't want to be and who you did want to be. And when you get that clarity to start making choices that align with that clarity of who all of you needs to be. That's a great um, reflection back of what I did experience. Yes, I started seeing who I wanted to be and who I didn't want to be. And gaining that clarity, as you just said, was the move. That was the big insight or inspiration around then making choices. So I'll tell you, if you're listening and you're thinking, what do I do with this? You know, my, my advice, my invitation for you would be, if you don't have that clarity, start seeking it. Start with what Ellen said about getting, sitting with your own emotions, recognizing them, identifying them. If you haven't done the work with a, a leadership coach before, I am a huge fan. Ellen has an entire coaching company, so she's obviously a fan. Ellen, tell us, uh, if someone is wanting to work with a coach, how do they start? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, uh, think about working with a coach. It's an amazingly positive you know, experience. Some of the basics is, it's my opinion that you should look for an International Coach Federation certified coach. There's a whole lot of certifications that I stand behind in terms of looking for a coach. And then there are many very talented executives and people who want to help other people, but don't have that um, more formal background. Often I feel like they're more as mentors mm. or they might be advisors, but they may not be able to do the deeper work that I think is the most beneficial about getting a certi- uh, working with a certified coach. After that, a good bit of re- research, uh, referrals, and then talking to some, really recognizing what some of their theories of change are. So it'd be important to ask their coaching background, their coaching school, and then they, you could uh, look into the theories of change of those coaching schools, but also just in addition, asking what models or theories does the coach work with? Outside of that, it's learning a little bit more about their process, how often they meet, and what kind of homework or practices does the coach work with for the client or offer the client? And I would say from my own coaching experience, be willing and able and committed to do the work. It's not just a conversation. There's usually, if you're going to get the full benefit from it, at least in my experience, Ellen, I'm curious your perspective that you need to be invested in, in doing the work that's going to help you get wherever it is you're, you're trying to go in terms of figuring yourself out and how how to do what it is you want to do as a leader. That's entirely correct. It's like anything else, every athlete, starting from uh, young, right? But certainly professional athletes have a coach and I don't mean the team coach. They have somebody that works with them over and over and over on their skills. Great musicians work with talented teachers and coaches and they work with them in a cycle of practice. They are learning a new skill. They're improving upon um, their skills. Their coach is skillful at identifying what they're ready to um, take on next or what's necessary for them to become more skillful in what they're doing, offers a a practice in that. In the coaching world, the practice would have been being able to slow down to reflect, notice, and name your feelings. That's a way to build more self-awareness and to bring more of yourself to who you are as a leader. Same as somebody uh, learning how to get more out of their jump shot. Just like the, and then you go back to your coach 
and you say, I understood this part of it. Let me show you, I can do it, but I got stuck on this part. Can we work harder at that again? And it's an ongoing kind of cycle. And there are different coaches for different stages of your career. I'm a big fan of coaching. And so take everything Ellen just said to heart and be thinking about that for yourself. It's, it's invaluable. Ellen, thank you so much for the time today. Let's talk about if people want to connect with you, follow you, see what you're doing, where are some of the best places to do that? Yeah, well, I have a website, robinsoncoaching.com. My LinkedIn profile, I like to post good coach and things about the world. So I'd love to hear from people through LinkedIn. And my new company, Person Puzzle, is at www.personpuzzle.com. Lots of new and interesting things, particularly for coaches. This is a solution I'm offering to coaches to support their work with their clients in discovering these pieces of themselves. So lots there for coaches to go find. All right. And I uh, will vouch for all of the above because I follow Ellen at all of the above. And, and I think it was even uh, as we got into this conversation, it was from one of those LinkedIn conversations that had started there. So Ellen, thanks again for uh, sharing so generously some of your experience, uh, your wisdom, your whole self, and for encouraging and helping leaders to bring their whole self to their leadership. We're all better off when we do that. I really appreciate you uh, putting your time into that professionally, but also spending that time with us today. Uh, Thank you so much, David. Again, I knew we would have a beautiful conversation and we did, so thank you. That we did, thank you so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.